When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Today's guest is Rachel Bowen, bassist, lyricist, and songwriter for the Tom's River, New Jersey rock band, Skid Row. Together, we take a deep dive into the writing, recording, and inspiration behind their 1989 smash hit single, 18 in Life, taken from their self-titled debut album. I told Rachel that I always felt Skid Row had a lot more to offer, both musically and especially lyrically, than most of their 80s and early 90s counterparts, 18 in Life being a prime example of this. The imagery and storytelling within the lyric is great and highly relatable. We talked about producer Michael Wagner's involvement and how he was the perfect person to take their great ideas and expound on them, improving the parts that were already awesome and weeding out the parts that weren't. We both agree that the best producers work as armchair psychologists, getting into the psyche of the musicians and making the music truly come alive. It was cool to hear Rachel talk about first hearing the mix come back from the song and being totally blown away. After all, this was their debut album, and he had previously never heard his band sound as massive and as great as this. For all this and a story about jet skiing in between bass performances, stick around. This is a good one. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Rachel, how's it going? It's going great, man. It's been a uh, an eventful year musically, believe it or not. <laughs> well, you you know, you guys are uh, what I what I call lifers. You just never stopped. You're you're still out there year after year doing your thing. And uh, I know you were busy this morning uh, talk, talking to your your record label about your new record. That that's always fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, just bouncing ideas off of each other and getting right to the brink of sort of an argument, but not really. Uh, let's not say argument. Let's say disagreement. But yeah, it's. Uh, Things are going really well, man. You know, we got to have this record deal with Ear Music out of Germany who did, uh, they do Alice Cooper and Deep Purple and things are going well, going well and got a lot of shows on the books for this year. That's very cool. Well, for the listeners, uh, Skid Row formed uh, back in 1986. And I want you to take us back uh, to that time period because not saying you guys didn't pay your dues. Every band has a different story. Some bands uh, have to, to to fight it out in the clubs for 10 years before they get a deal. But it, it seems relatively quick. Uh, I know that uh, you and Dave, uh, the snake Sabo, had formed the band in 86. 
Uh, and then I believe Scotty and Rob came shortly thereafter. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before Skid Row, actually, Scotty Hill and I had a band together. And then when we were looking for another guitar player, Scotty came in and uh, it just it went from like one lead guitar to two lead guitars. And it just kind of really shaped the whole Skid Row sound. And I know that, uh, of course, Dave uh, has history. I believe he went to school with John Bon Jovi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, at the time, uh, Bon Jovi's manager was Doc McGee, who took you under his wing. So it just seems like the next thing you knew, you you uh, had, a, had a singer named Matt Fallon, who I believe just did maybe some demos with you guys. Uh, he, he did shows, too. And uh, right up, he, he was there right up until about 88, I guess you know, um, or maybe 87, something like that. But uh, yeah, we did a bunch of shows with Matt and, and a ton of demos. And then uh, of course, uh, I want to say it said 88. I'm thinking it was probably late summer, early fall. You guys were at Royal recorders in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin of all places mm-hmm. with Michael Wagner making, making the first record. Yeah. So uh, today we're going to talk about 18 in life. Take us back. Where was that written between 86 and 88? If you recall? Um, well, we wrote it and uh, we were all living at home at the time. Snake uh, was living in Sayreville. I was in Tom's River, New Jersey. And, um, you know, we just drive back and forth and write. Uh, he actually worked in Tom's River. So a lot of times we'd write at my parents' house and whether it was in my room or out on the back porch. And we, uh, he goes, man, I got this riff. He goes, it, it kind of has an Aerosmith feel to it, kind of a Kings and Queen type of thing. And uh, he played it and he was singing some of the melody and told me some of the lyrics. And immediately, as soon as he started playing it, I was like, dude, that is so haunting. Like, that is so, so haunting. And things just kind of started falling into place really quick with that song. And it, it went, it had, it started off a completely different topic and a completely different story than just turned into the story of a, a kid losing his way and the kid, the character Ricky, who, I'm sure everybody in their life knows a guy like this that just can't get out of his own way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that that's how that the whole storyline started evolving. Well, I always love this song and I picked this one. Obviously, you guys have a have a number of hits, uh, especially on the on the first two records, uh, the breakout single, the, the lead off single from uh, the record Skid Row self-titled that was released on January 24th, 89 was Youth Gone Wild. Awesome song, uh, and of course uh, the ballad from the record "I Remember You." It was just uh, uh, stratospheric for you guys. It sent you it sent you into the stars. It was it was a massive hit. But this one, you know, it's interesting looking back at that time period. By the late 80s, you know, a lot of my friends were kind of getting tired with the the whole glam thing. And it started to really become cliche. Mm-hmm. And you were one of the bands that stuck out with this song in particular. It wasn't about partying and women and, and, and whatever else. This had a story behind it, like, like all the great uh, songwriters. So how did this lyric come about? Well... Um, like, like I said, it first started off uh, as a song about Snake's older brother and, and his, uh, of going to Vietnam and one person and coming back a different person. And then it's just started changing as we, as the lyrics developed, 
and the story developed, it started becoming more general. Instead of being a story about that that one person is telling, it it developed into a story that a lot of people could tell because, I mean, let's face it, we all know a guy like the character in the song. Sure. And, you know, sometimes it got so dark that we're like, okay, let's back off some of these lyrics and let's just change this. But that's how it all developed. And it really, after we had that in mind of what the actual storyline was, it was, everything was very organic and it just all came together really quick. There were some changes here and there, like the one line, you can't think of dying when the bottle's your best friend was originally, you can't think of dying when the devil's your best friend. But one of us said, man, I think the devil is it's just too cartoony and stuff like that when it's just being too general. Let, let, let's just say, okay, this guy has a problem and he killed his friend because he was all messed up. And so it, it just kind of developed like that. And then, uh, you know, we, we are storytellers and, and a lot of our songs do tell stories i don't know whether that's a jersey thing or not because i mean springsteen is like the king of it man you took the you took the words out of my mouth i'm telling you i don't care if it's the hard rock guys the springsteens the metal guys the punk guys they all tell it's like this rough and tumble uh from the streets type uh uh, story right we are we are all storytellers man i mean (laughs) you get four guys from jersey in a room and the stories just never end (laughs) never end (laughs) yeah and one's trying to top the other one you know sure and I'll, i'll tell you looking back I'm I'm surprised because MTV, you know, I think sometimes maybe they they use this as an excuse. They didn't like the song or they didn't know how to say no to this particular manager, but they would use the excuse of we can't air this because yeah. it talks about a gun a couple times in the song. You know, yeah, it's amazing that uh, that it did get on because it was weird. It was weird back then. Well, yeah, and there were there were a lot of MTV pushbacks. Uh, one in particular is. They uh, there was one edit where the the character of Ricky actually pointed the gun at his friend's head and his friend swats it away. They didn't like that. So you just see the him grabbing the gun. Then you see the other dude swatting it away. In hindsight, that was the right thing to do. That was really the right <laughs> thing to do for real, especially the way things are now. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, sure. With as crazy as as things have happened with with shootings and stuff. That was the absolute right thing to do. Um, There was another scene where there was going to be blood that was running down the sidewalk into a sewer that we were going to film. And we were like, this probably isn't a good idea that we, we didn't even, we just nixed it. It didn't get, it didn't even get filmed to be, uh, to be cut or, or to be requested to be cut. The thing is when you tell a story, uh, when you tell a story to a huge audience, uh, you have to definitely tell it responsibly. You know what I mean? Uh, because For sure. there's a fine line between telling a story and an opinion and it could, you know, so you, if you want to tell your story and get your story across, you have to be really responsible about it. There you go. Was Doc McGee an integral part in, in getting your, your deal with Atlantic? Yes, without a doubt. Once, I mean, John and Richie were a ton of help. They were a ton of help getting us indoors to play our, our demos. I mean, we Snake and I would go to New York with a you know bunch of cassettes, and we'd have meetings. Sometimes we'd sit there all day waiting for them to let us in. Sometimes they take us right in. And, and um, Atlantic was one of the 
the labels we went up to that that were really keen on the band and they 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 courted us for a long time um but yeah we we would go to new york in the freezing cold or in the blazing heat and just uh just tough it out you know do we have enough money for a cab and to get back home on the train <laughs> no okay let's walk <laughs> that's where it looks like we're walking uptown you know so uh yeah it, it was a lot of great memories actually but yeah doc uh was very instrumental in getting to the deal to where it was and you know because we were Atlantic was after us and after us, and we felt really comfortable with Dorothy and with Jason, uh, the a r and we felt really comfortable about it. Is that Jason Flom? J- Jason Flom and, and Dorothy yeah. Carvello. And then, you know, and, and you know, we, we had the, the uh, you know, Toon Jerem and Doug Morris and Ahmed Erdogan came to a show and all that stuff. And it was, it was a big deal, you know. But um, in the 11th hour, there was interest from Geffen. And Doc called. He said, "Okay, we're going to sign with Geffen." And we're like, "Well, what about all of our friends at Atlantic? You know, <laughs> we we developed relationships with them." And I should say, this was the eleventh hour. They came back, and it was for a little bit more money. And which we were kids, we didn't care about the money. We wanted to go where we thought was a good home for us. And the fact that their idea the producer that Geffen wanted us to work with and Geffen and the A&R guy himself, it would scrap like all of our songs except for two. And uh, it was really weird, man. It's like the only two that they kept out of 30 that we played at a showcase was making a mess in 18 in life. They said, start writing. And we were just like, Whoa, man, this is crazy. We're just starting from square (laughs) one, man. And then, uh, that, That's why, and that was another reason why we loved Atlantic because they love the songs, and and they're like, man, this represents you guys so perfectly, this music, and because we got to know them on a personal basis, and, and that's really important. So then they came back, and before we even got pen to paper with Geffen, we signed with Atlantic, and it was a done deal. Well, producer Michael Wagner, I mean, he's just uh, the the list of stuff he's done, everything from Motley Crue, Wasp, Overkill, Great White, Striper, Poison, Alice Cooper. He mixed Master of Puppets by Metallica. Uh, The man, the man is a legend. How did he come into the picture? He, uh, he, you know, did you know he mixed like the rock version of Black Cat by Janet Jackson? I, I I read that, (laughs) which is, which is, which is, which is amazing and awesome. obviously we knew his his work he was high demand then how you know how you guys were able to to snatch him up i'm sure doc and atlantic helped with that yeah well we met with a bunch of producers and we just you know we like some of them but we just didn't vibe and and a lot of them it seemed like almost like a takeover more than uh okay we're working with you type of thing and Snake and I would always just be like, like, and and all the guys were like, how do we feel about this? It's like, well, we love the record that he did, but is he going to change us? Like, we don't want to, you know, we, of course, we're going to listen to people and take creative criticism, but we don't want to lose the essence of what we knew Skid Row was. So when we met with Michael, we were playing in Providence, Rhode Island at the place called, do you remember the living room? up in Providence. I never played there, but I, okay. I, I, I've heard of it. Yeah. Just yeah. a big box. <laughs> it was a big <laughs> rectangle One of those. box. Yeah. So Jason Flom and 
I believe Doc or Scott McGee brought Michael to the show and he watched and, you know, he was just coming off of like the, the stuff he did with um, White Lion that was blowing up and all that. Mm-hmm. And so we're sitting there at this grimy table in the club that is now just a, you know, we had played and now it just uh, the it was either in the club. No, we met him in the club, but then we had a talk, I believe, in the lobby of the hotel and Snake and I were sitting directly across the table from each other and we were talking. And the one thing Michael said, and, you know, obviously he had all of our respect right from the beginning. But the one thing he said is I will let I want the band to be the band. And I immediately kicked Snake under the table and (laughs) went, cool, 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 cool. And then we walked away. We just said to Jason, we got, we got to get him. We got to get him. He gets us. He totally gets us. And he, he's just like the funniest person. He gets our stupid sense of humor and, and just the ball busting and all that. And, and it just right then and there, we knew we're like, now we're going to do great things with him. And we certainly did. All the greatest producers, they let the band be themselves, but they elevate what they're hearing. That's exactly right. He took good parts and made them great. He took good songs and made them great songs. And yeah, it was, you know, for us, all of us, it was the first time working with a professional producer. I mean, we always work with the guys that own the studios, which were great. But now we are working on a level that we've never worked before. And he was such a good mentor of how to handle this kind of stuff. And to, to work in the studio with Michael is like, okay, say you're having just a shit day and before you even get to the studio and he'll give you, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Let's, let's, uh, let's hit this. I, I want to forget about this argument I had or whatever, you know, I want to forget about my dog getting hit by a car or whatever. And we work and he, and he's like, starts clicking lights off. Let's go jet skiing. And we go down to the lake <laughs> and we go down to Lake Geneva and get on jet skis for like three hours, go back to the studio, turn the lights back on and we'd start nailing stuff. And he'd do that with all of us, you know? Yeah. It's because he's like going into a situation and trying to get a good take when your head isn't in it is a waste of your time. It's a waste of everyone's time. You're just going to frustrate yourself where it's going to spill over into tomorrow when you're trying to do mm-hmm. this again. Fuck it. Let's go. Let's go shoot, you know, bow and arrows. Let's go shoot guns. You know, let's go blow up fireworks. And, you know, that is so cool that you that you brought that up, because I've always said the best producers are a are, uh, uh, poor man psychologist. They oh, really dude. are. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we, we worked with my band, worked with Rob Cavallo some years ago, and Rob was was the best at it. And he didn't just uh, act uh, on behalf of the whole band. He would individually know how to talk to each of us. Oh, and yeah. Say, yeah. hey, he'd take you apart. Those are the best producers, man. Yeah, and dude. <laughs> it sound, it sound, sounds like Michael Michael was, uh, was absolutely the right guy for this. Now, the track was released on June 16th, 1989. Uh, it was written by yourself uh, and, and Dave, uh, Dave the Snake. The album had 11 songs on it, and here's something I want to know. Did the label, did Doc, did you guys know what the singles were? Because what I found really interesting, that 18 and Life was at number five on the record. Youth Gone Wild was number seven, and I Remember You was all the way at number 10 before the 11th track. Typically, your your hits are, are, are higher up yeah. uh, on, on, on the track listing. Did you guys know you had a hit with 18 and Life? No. Um, okay, so... After Youth Gone Wild, we're like, okay, 
obviously you dream your whole life that you have a hit song when it happens you're like wow how is it like what do i do now (laughs) i have no idea what to do now so and like the the splash that that made was just ridiculous way beyond anything that we could have imagined so we're like okay we got to come back with something really good like but at at then the typical move would be go, go with the ballad go with the full-on acoustic ballad love song and you're golden our worry was if we did that because most bands after they did that it was like okay where's their third single nothing you know yeah that was our biggest worry and the fact that snake and i didn't even want i remember you on on the album <laughs> not very smart on our part but uh <laughs> we we were really resistant and, and we're just like man we don't we don't think it's a good idea to put that ballad out. And so it was actually Richie Sambora. And he said, 18 in life should be your second single because it defines you guys. It defines where your head's at. It tells a great story, just like we were talking. Sure. And there was a lot of resistance. We, we dug that idea. We were like, this could be really cool. We, we liked the idea a lot. There was a lot of resistance um, from management, from the label, but it, sunk in and you know it was at this point it's just like all right sink or swim it's our, our our second could could be our last shot at anything no pun intended but it's like and, and it worked out and i think it yeah it had a really cool story albeit dark i i, I love the music to that song i love playing it and, and we were hitting on all cylinders like all five of us we were just getting everything right with the help of michael yeah but i think it transcended more than just hard rock kids you know what i mean and more than just just girls with big hair i think people heard it because i mean i was hearing it on like pop radio like you know the oh yeah the real pop stations in new york city and i was hearing it uh, on stations i i never thought i would hear and i think it, it was it was had such a a big reach out to people that wouldn't necessarily even listen to skid row but then they heard that song they're like wow this song is really cool i dig it i know a guy like that so that that was uh that was i'm not going to say it it was a uh, calculated move but it was a really smart move to do that well i'll tell you the the rollout from this record i think was perfect youth gone wild is is a is a tough song it's heavy uh could it could have fit on slave to the grind as far as i'm concerned uh then you you went with 18 to life as the second song i think uh i think richie was right um it it's uh balladish but it's heavy yeah you know so you're kind of dipping your toes in in a little bit of a softer territory and then you hit him with i remember you i think it's great i want to jump into the song now the song is three minutes minutes and 51 seconds there's an eight bar intro uh the first eight seconds here's a guitar arpeggio that haunting guitar part that you're talking about it's so good mm. based around that uh based around uh, e minor uh the guitar with the bass the bass is playing root notes and then eight seconds there's a few ride cymbal hits the bass goes up for an octave for a second and gets a little busier at 12 seconds there's this ah, that's let out i'm assuming that's sebastian that's kind of panned off left mm-hmm. Uh, 
the bass continues to move. Uh, the ride symbol is keeping time now with single hits on the one on the one beat. And at 14 seconds, there's a high pitched guitar with three single notes that ring out before we get into verse one. Those little things, I, I'm always intrigued by the little, ah, was that like Michael's idea or was that just something Sebastian threw in there? It might have been something <laughs> he threw in there. I'm not quite sure. I wasn't there during the vocals. Michael liked to close the studio when he was doing vocals. But uh, yeah, I um, a lot of stuff, you know, we we rehearsed. It could have it could have been there in rehearsal. I really don't know because we rehearsed the shit out of everything back then. We we like to be really precise before we step into the studio. At least we did then. And uh, that guitar thing you're talking about was Scotty Hill, and he calls it Seagulls. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I love it. Yeah, and that that's that is Scotty Hill in a nutshell with those little things that just if that wasn't there it would still have mood but it wouldn't have that mood you know what i mean right. like, oh sure like that th those three notes summed up the 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 whole tone of the song you know what i mean it made it even more haunting and something yeah. that uh you know i was i talked to huey lewis recently and he there was this part in the song was like an ah thing that he did in his song i can't remember exactly what it was and i said what was that he goes i was just kind of like warming up my voice and doing something between takes bob clearmountain who mixed the record he threw it in there i'm like what the heck is that you know and back then before pro tools not everything was edited you yeah. just get everything on tape exactly. it was just there it's you know there, right. sometimes so that ah thing could have just been him you know maybe, i don't know taking a puff off a cigarette who knows how that stuff gets in there i just think it's so so cool yeah. uh especially back in the analog days verse one uh that intro guitar the bass and the cymbal on the drum is still there that ride symbol Ricky was a young boy he had a heart of stone Lived nine to five and he worked his fingers to the bone. Just barely out of school, came from the edge of town, fought like a switchblade so no one could take him down. Oh no. It uh, kind of says what it says. It says what it says. And I like to be a little more poetic about stuff. I believe that first line when it was the other storyline was had a heart of gold. And then we kind of kept it like that, but I'm like, this dude wouldn't have a heart of gold. This is contradictory to what this story is about. So we changed it to heart of stone. It's and, tougher. Yeah. And then the, um, we couldn't think of, uh, uh, like we were, we were writing fought like a what fought like a what. And I was just, I, all of a sudden, I don't know why I thought of West side story when I go fought like a switchblade and we were like, yes. And you know, yeah, and it just kind of sums up a kid that may not have the the greatest home life, and that just kind of spills out into his social skills, you know. And, and he always had his guard up, you know. No one could take him down. His guard was always up, 
and he felt it had to be, and it didn't necessarily have to. On the first half of verse one of the line, live nine to five, and he worked, on worked. The d- big drums come in, the big stereo guitars come in and ring out over the second half of verse one. On the second half, uh, love these little nuances. Uh, came from the edge of town on that line, there's a guitar feedback swell panned off to the left. Mm-hmm. On the switchblade line, uh, between the, that and the last line uh, of verse one, the stereo guitars are back in, and there's a really cool, pinch harmonic that happens before you go into go into pre-chorus one how much did the song evolve if you can recall from the demo to like at this point in the song was there was there changes was the intro shorter do you do you remember yes uh it, it was dynamics were added more than anything i mean the arrangement was still pretty much the same we changed the bridge very 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 slightly not chord wise, just just like dynamics, you know, like crescendo wise. And that was just one tiny little thing. But those little nuances, like the Scotty Hill nuances and and, and the, those pinched harmonics and stuff, those, those were probably uh, something that happened as time went on. You know, I know Scotty was doing those what he calls the seagulls in the beginning from <laughs> yeah. from pre-production with Michael. That That's pretty much when that started, I believe. Uh, now and now you have me wondering. I want to go back and listen to the original demo we did with Matt Fallon, but I can't. I, I don't know where the hell it is. Everything somehow ends up on YouTube sooner or later, know, as, as we all as, as we all know. Yeah. Um, on the pre-chorus, the drum feel changes here. The stereo guitars go to eighth note, like kind of palm mutes. But it this part is tough. This is like one of the heaviest parts of the song in the pre-chorus. Mm-hmm. He had no money. No, no good at home. He walked the streets a soldier, and he fought the world alone, and now it's... It's a, it's that kid. Everything he stands for is within himself, and he has an internal war going on, you know, with himself. People have been telling this kid he's no good for so long that he has believed it. He has been convinced of it, you know? Mm-hmm. So he walks the streets alone, you know? He could be with a million people. He could be with all his friends but he doesn't realize that. Hey, don't go anywhere. Krista Makes a Podcast will be right back after a few words from our sponsors. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. 
I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles now at Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. And now, on with the show. So before we get into Chorus 1, I want to talk about a couple things here in uh, uh, pre-Chorus 1. That pinch harmonic comes in again after No, No Good at Home, which which is just really cool. And at the last line, and he fought the world alone, and now it's the guitars really open up here to take us into the chorus. Walk the streets of Do you remember Michael talking about those kind of dynamics and those little things? Yeah, uh, actually, um, we do the. There's like that whole series of of builds, like and that was that was deliberate. That was all very deliberate. And Michael just wanted us to make it even more deliberate. He's like, I get, I get the drama, and you know, this is almost like orchestra. Like he goes, I get it. Accentuate that. Make that more just just ramp it up and so we we almost got to the point where it felt uncomfortable and then you know we just started loosening it up a little bit and it uh yeah he he that's where michael was the greatest coach in the world you know what i mean on this record he 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 didn't want to change stuff he just wanted to take it from level one to level 10, <laughs> you know? Right. And, and the producer is just so important to sometimes be able to tell the guitar player, I know your little noodly guitar part, you you really, you really like it, but it just doesn't fit. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. Some, some, sometimes you need to hear that. Cause when Absolutely. you hear it from your bass player, you get really angry. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's when you sneak over to producers like, do you like that guitar part? No, I don't. Can you <laughs> yeah. please tell him? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's go jet skiing first. Yeah, we'll we'll yeah, talk yeah. about this later. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, the chorus comes quick here at 54 seconds. We're in chorus one. in life you got it 18 in life you know your crime is time and it's 18 in life to go 18 in life you got it 18 in life you know your crime is time and it's 18 in life to go and i noticed all these choruses are all doubled they're all double choruses yeah was there ever talk about this hey baby we should only just give them a teaser here on chorus one or was it always like that no because it was really quick and it was just it was a short message uh so we we felt that this was the right length. You know what I mean? It just, yeah. Cause sometimes, you know, a lot, a lot of, a lot of stuff just calls for a single chorus 
first and then a double chorus out. But yeah, yeah, it, it just, it, we never thought about shortening it. I mean, the message was really quick and the chorus is really short, you know, in, in the scope of the song. You just don't see that a lot on a first chorus, yeah. you know, and it's it, when, I, when I do it, it always it always kind of jumps out of me. The harmonies are really subtle in this song is in, in the chorus here. It's the only time you get harmonies they are really subtle, but they're cool. And the lead vocal almost sounds double track. Do you recall if it was it was the, the vocals yeah, double track? It was. OK, OK. Uh, you're getting harmonies only on the 18 in life. You got it. And again, talking about that haunting guitar riff, the harmonies here are, are haunting. Mm-hmm. Who did the harmonies on on, on that? Part? I, be- I believe Scotty Hill sang those harmonies i know i didn't do it on that this song okay but yeah i believe that was scotty and um it, it might have been scotty and snake i know that they do it live uh um, yeah but i'm i'm not 100 percent sure i mean there could have been a there could have been a, a ton of different uh, note choices or harmonies that i think what you picked was perfect it's subtle it doesn't stick out but without it there you would notice it being gone i love harmonies like that yeah you know the cor- this chorus is heavy in its own right but it's not as heavy as the pre-chorus uh the guitars are distorted but they're playing arpeggiated picking pattern uh that guitar is off to the left the other guitar right is is got these big chords and the bass sounds great here holding down the bottom end i'd love the bass tone on that thanks do you recall uh working on that was that did you come in with a bass sound already as a, as a young musician or did, did michael uh, help you cultivate that michael helped me because i mean all my equipment that i had at that point up to that point was shit everything was falling apart i went into the studio <laughs> i had a beat up pv head a homemade cabinet um with two 15s in it and that would it was just so boomy and awful sounding so Michael's like, let's get you through four tens and one fifteen. So we changed to that. And then he had an SWR head with the separate crossovers for each string. And we, we dialed in this old, I got a 78 uh, Mocha P bass that I have played. Oh, cool. Yeah. I have played on everything. And actually I only played a little on this newest record. I, I played this, this other P bass and uh, a Spectre, but um, yeah. It, we we worked on it a lot. Like we worked at least a day on getting that tone right. Cause he just kept asking me, he's like, what? He goes, give me examples of bass tones you like. And I go, I love the, how clear Paul McCartney's bass is his tone, but I love the, how vicious Gene Simmons bass tone is. And I said, if we could get a mix in Dennis Dunaway from Alice Cooper, if we could get settle somewhere in there, I, I want it to sound like very percussive, like a piano. But if you're playing with the pedals on the piano smashed to the ground, you know, so it's just wide yeah. open. And so that's what we did. We worked on that for a few, well, a good day, day and a half. And then uh, that's what we came up with. Well, I'll tell you what my first professional record did, and I'm sure you could attest to this looking back. Uh, it really got me to to listen not only to myself, but to the rest of the band. It wasn't all about me. Now we're on a click track. Now I'm going, wow. Yeah. You know, I never knew the terms play behind the beat, play ahead of the beat. Right. And you're, and you're, lear- you're learning those things that just continue in your career to just uh, sure. to develop. And it, yep. it's, it's, it's so awesome. Um, at the end of Chorus 1, 18 in life to go, and it's like a, O-E-O-E-O that Sebastian does. And then there's, I don't know if he's saying, it's almost like a sigh of relief. It's like, sigh. Again, it's one of those. Yeah, you recall I, what he's, what he, I, th- I think that was just in the moment type of thing. 
Right. Yeah. Okay. And or maybe, maybe he, the maybe he had a leak. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> did uh did did Michael mix the record? Yeah. Yep. He did. Yeah. Okay. So maybe maybe he left it in there. Um, <laughs> but uh, at the very end of the chorus, there's a dual harmony guitar part that comes in one pan left and one pan right. Just real quick. There's just a, a, a little bit a little bit of uh, a nuance there before verse two. <laughs> in his heartbeat his veins burned gasoline it kept his motor running but it never kept him clean they say he loved adventure ricky's the wild one he married trouble had a courtship with a gun so there we're talking about that gun from earlier it's yeah. actually in the lyric yeah pretty cool uh cool uh, lyrics here yeah and it, it now it starts to point out his issues you know what i mean he's obviously drinking he's obviously drinking and things running through this guy are bad Killing his heartbeat, his veins burn gasoline. It, it kind of says it there. Everything in him running through him. That, that that's kind of metaphor for this guy's soul. Well, at the end of chorus one, something I didn't mention, the, the guitar pan left is doing these stabs on the one. And that continues into verse two. I love those little stabs. Yeah. It's not there in verse one. No. And that's just the song's just building. <laughs> Recall that happening with Michael. Michael, that's Michael. He he goes. Oh, it's he, awesome. He goes. Awesome. I want you guys to look at. Uh, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, but he said, "I want you guys to approach a song as a set of stairs, and every part you're stepping up, every part until you get to the top of the stairs." And that just resonated to to Snake and I, especially as songwriters. You know, it's like, okay, we get this. So. We added that those stabs in there, and then I kind of played off what the guys were doing. And if you hear it, it's almost a counterpoint between the bass and yes, and the yes. guitars, just for that one little snippet in there. And then it, yeah. it goes back to just the regular, uh, you know, the, re the regular um, pattern. But yeah, th this is one of those songs where when it get we get to it in the set. I get really excited because I just love playing that bass line. I love it because it there's just there's so many dimensions and textures to it, you know. You you should be really proud of it. it it's Thanks, really man. it's really it's really good. Um in between it kept his motor running but never kept him clean. Those big guitars come in like they came in in verse 1, but what's interesting here, they don't have the impact of verse 1 because the second verse is more rocking, mm. but but there's but they're still there, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh which 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 is great, but it's interesting talking about the song building this doesn't really lift it there. It's there. It doesn't have the impact of verse one, but it's but it's cool that it doesn't here in, right. in, in this particular section. The second half, uh, the guitars go eighth note again with those chord stabs, like chin, 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 and, and, and the stabs happen. Um, on Ricky's The Wild One, there's a pinch harmonic off to the right there. Uh, on He Married Trouble, uh, there's a really cool delay on Sebastian's voice on just on the word trouble there. He's the wild one. He 
I'm sure Michael had something to do with that in, in, in the mixing stage. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. In the last line, there's a, a subtle pinch harmonic, very subtle off to the right. So talking about the song building, there's a bunch of little uh, ear candy moments that are happening here at the back half of verse two. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's Michael with suggestions and, and yeah, just throw this in there. And then it, it was it's great because, uh, as you know, when creativity is infectious and when someone starts coming up with stuff that that just spurs something in your own head, you know? So I, I just yeah. remember the song, like stuff that we hadn't already done and stuff that we haven't had set in stone, didn't have set in stone. It, it, like these little creative bursts, boom, boom, boom would pop up. And I, I would imagine there was a lot more on there. Michael had a weed through and just picked the best out of them. You know? Yeah. 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 It's b- b- better to have more than less. Uh, I love pre-chorus too, Rachel. You could have easily went back to pre-chorus one. He had no money, no, no good at home, walk the streets a soldier. But the lyrics here, because, and I feel, uh, the because you're telling a story here that it had to be a different set of lyrics, mm. which is almost a little scary in a sense because you want that familiarity. You want the audience to be able to sing a lyric they've already heard. But I yeah. think it was integral. I think it was it had to be different for pre-chorus two. I agree. Um, we we tend to do that a lot when we're when we're have a story that's pretty detailed and you because sometimes when you go back and use the the first B verse again. It mm-hmm. kind of cuts the story off. We could have maybe left it, but we still had the bridge to get to the lyrics and the bridge. So, yeah, we felt that it was necessary to have continual lyrics throughout this whole song. And what's so cool with me doing this show and breaking it down is uh, how many times have I heard 18 in life in my life? And I never <laughs> really realized, wow, these are these are different, the pre-choruses, but it has to be for, for this song. It's, it's, it's so cool. The lyric is bang, bang, shoot them up. So you get another... Uh, yeah. uh, gun reference in there. Bang, bang, shoot him up. The party never ends. You can't think of dying when the bottle's your best friend and now it's. Yeah. So you're getting you're getting his troubles again coming in here on this. Yeah. Part. And it's like, you know, bang, bang, shoot him up. The party never ends. It's like, you know, he's not really taking this seriously. He's a he's not taking himself seriously. It's like every, everything's a party and waving a gun around like an idiot. You know what I mean? Because he he's he's so deep down in his own darkness and and with with the bottle or whatever you know and and a lot of stuff is metaphor but um yeah it's it just showing how dark things really are for the character I'll tell you something else i love and, and and you know that this was done done analog because there's no copy and pasting going on here i talk about that a lot on this show i like the now it's on this pre-chorus is different than the first one sebastian goes up there mm-hmm. it lifts the song do you remember michael talking about those things of how how it's got to continue with the theme of building the song yeah, yeah. I, I remember him saying, you don't want everything to be exactly the same because you guys will be robots. You know, this isn't what you guys are, you know, th- not at all. That always kept us th- kind of thinking ahead of ourselves in a good way, mm-hmm. not getting ahead of ourselves, but thinking ahead of ourselves and and just thinking of what is going to make this part better. And th- that's why there, there's little things that are different. You know what I, I always equate it to? It's like you've been playing a song a song you guys have been doing say fucking 15 years yeah and you play it live i guarantee you you are not playing it ex- this way now than you were 15 <laughs> years ago you know what i mean yep 
because yep. you you keep hearing stuff and you're like, oh man, this is kind of cool. You you know you have to stay within a parameter, or people are going to be like, what what is he doing? You know, but yeah, it's the same way, but in a shorter space of time within a sure, song. Sure, you know? that's a, that, that's a great analogy. And I've I've uh, I've had songs come on shuffle before of an album, or a song I haven't heard of my band in forever. And I go, oh, I don't sing it like that anymore. You <laughs> yeah, know, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and sometimes sometimes the fans will call you out for it too. I've had that happen. Uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah. We get, we get, I, but I, I love where, where it goes. The, the now it's changes on that uh, pre-chorus. It, it, it's great. It just lifts into chorus too. Here's something else. There's so much going on in the story here with the lyrics and all the verses and the bridge and everything that I love that the chorus is the same every time mm-hmm. because you don't need any more information. I think it's genius. I never realized that until I started studying this. It's just, oh, that's it's, funny. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you can't put any more information that you already have the song. You just have to, to drive home the hook 18 and life you got it 18 in life you know so chorus two is exactly the same uh on 18 in life to go the fourth line the melody goes up here it's different from chorus one love that Harmonies are the same as chorus one. They're very subtle in the same places. Um, and then at the very end, it says, and it's 18 in life to go. And there's like a, yeah, that uh, Sebastian lets out. And there's a killer bass run that leads into the bridge. It's super loud and crisp. And I'm sure <laughs> Michael, Michael floored that there, but, but yeah. man, your tone's ripping there. Thanks. Yeah. It, 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 he, he got exactly what I was hearing in my head. He got that tone that, that, I didn't want you to just feel the bass. I wanted you to actually be able to hear the notes. And, and he was into that idea because a lot of, a lot of bands that came out back then, you know, unless it was like a Billy Sheen or something like that, you really just felt the bass more than anything. And, and I wanted to be, you know, when I listen to kiss, I hear jeans walking bass lines and, and, and whatnot. I call it, I call it lead bass. Yeah. I got, I got a guy, I got a guy in my band. He's a, he's a frustrated guitar player. Call it lead bass. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and, and I always tell people like, like bass, young bass players that ask for advice, I go, know your place in a song, you know, you're not gonna, you, like if you, if, the guitar player played a solo from the first downbeat to the last one. You're going to be pissed. I said, you have to know how not to get in the way of the song and, and you could do really cool shit in that time, but you cannot get in the way of the song because the melody and the, the structure, the, the, the end product, the end result of the song is the most important thing, not just one of its components. Pick your spots and know what not to play. That's the hardest. That's the hardest lesson. And then get the hell out of the way and let other other things talk. (laughs) Let big people talk. (laughs) Exactly. Well, this bridge is is probably uh, you know probably one of my favorite parts of the song. It's just awesome. Accidents will happen. They all heard Ricky say he fired his six shot to the wind. That child blew a child away. And that line right there, that's the surprising line that got on MTV to me. That's some yeah. pretty graphic imagery. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, this is where everything comes to a climax, you know, it's like accidents will happen. They heard Rick, you know, he just like, he's so nonchalant about what's about to happen, or it's kind of putting the, the cart before the horse. It's like accidents will happen. They all heard Ricky say, you know, it could have been said when, or after he fired his six shot, we're, we're uh, implying like it's after he fired the bullet and killed his friend. He was like, accidents will happen. You know what I mean? And just took it like with a grain of salt. And that's, it's, it's implying uh, that the timeline is kind of reversed, but I always love stuff like that. Well, I'll tell you else what, what is awesome about this bridge is uh, the guitar panned off to the right is doing this low register, like counter melody part there. Yeah. That's just, that only happens that time in the song. It's very different texture and feel. Mm -hmm. Again, was that something you recall being the demo or was that something Michael orchestrated in the studio with you guys? Man, that's another, let's go, let's roll the tape on. Cause I'm not, I, I don't, I think that that was a suggestion from Michael but I'm not hundred percent sure. All I know is I kind of weaved in and out of that on, on the bass, just little things here and there. I'd pick up some part of the riff and then just lay back on the other parts. So, and I'll do respect to you. You know, us musicians, we don't sit around and listen to our own stuff. So I'm, I'm telling you stuff about your song. You're probably going, wait, what are you talking yeah, about? No, yeah. <laughs> As it comes up, here's a funny thing. I'm not thinking of the recording. I'm thinking, wait, Okay. How do you so, do a live? So Snake stands to my right on stage. Scotty stands to my left. <laughs> Who played that? You know, I know yeah. I hear it every night. But and like, I got a drummer behind me pounding away at 110 dB. Yeah. I don't know what's going <laughs> yeah, exactly. on. Exactly. <laughs> well, the very last line, um, the guitar opens up on Child, Blew a Child Away. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what's like the start of the guitar solo. Yeah. And that soaring vocal that takes us into the guitar solo. <laughs> Guitar solo is 16 bars. The solo is panned pretty hard off to the left. And I love that with two guitar bands, you know, Judas Priest, the Iron Maidens, where you really get that separation. You get to hear the nuances of each guitar player. It's just not just carbon copy stereo guitars doing the exact same yeah. thing. Yeah. And um, the guitar on the right is playing big chords and... Uh, the bass is mimicking the guitar arpeggio part from the choruses uh, because it, the, the solo uh, sections, the same progression uh, as the chorus. And that's awesome how you kind of change there in that part. Oh, thanks. I, I wanted to lay back a little bit, but I didn't want it to be boring. The solo, that's, that's Scotty Hill. The idea to start the solo that early to this day still blows my mind because it's it's odd it's right really odd but it's so scotty hill and just all right that's like somebody revving a car you know what i mean revving their engine <laughs> before they yeah. take before the light goes green and that that always blew my mind i'm just like man what an awesome idea that was that and it just it really sets it up. I never thought, again, I've heard this song hundreds, hundreds upon hundreds of times, mm -hmm. and I, it never dawned on me until I, I really broke it. Oh, wow, that guitar solo comes in in the oddest of places, yeah. but it works. It really, so good. really does work. Yep. 
Yeah. Well, there's a yeah, 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 yeah that happens before uh, chorus three. And chorus three, again, is just, you know, uh, what I'm calling a double chorus, but it's the same as uh, chorus one and two. Uh, on the fourth line, again, 18 and life to go. He says, go, whoa. It changes there from chorus two. Again, just another subtle change. Mm-hmm. And then on the very last line, uh, and it's 18 and life to go, the guitar solo comes in it's panned right it's and uh which the, the other solos were kind of pan left so it's interesting now your ears taking you over here it's panned off to the right it's for 16 bars at, on the outro here and at the very end there's some uh, cool vocal uh operatics that that happen before the song mm-hmm. ends you're doing some cool little bass and the song just kind of kind of dissolves and uh and, and brings us to the end of it this mix come back and what did you think of it yeah well snake and i were there for the mix we always stay till the very last day of everything so we we heard it a bunch but when we got it mastered back i was just like holy shit like just listening to it in headphones and then i cranked it on my stereo and i was like this is unbelievable this is like it's a it's a league man yeah and, and and here's something really funny we were kids. This is the first professional album we ever did. When we demoed this song, it was an electric guitar doing the beginning, and that's that. So Michael had Snake overdub uh, an acoustic guitar with it. Okay, I was going to ask. I was okay. so <laughs> incredibly bummed out, and I was like, we're not going to be able to do that live. And I was, I was so bummed out to the point where Michael came to my hotel room and was like, dude, what's going on? And I'm like, how are we going to play this live, man? I said, he goes, this is production. This is production. It's not going to sound like there's another guy up there. It's just going to make this part bigger. You have to trust me. And do you know why it's so good? Why it's so good? Not to cut you off. I have to interject is because I had it written down here at the top. I hear acoustics. I'm like, I really thought that it was the chorus effect on the guitar. It is so subtle. I can yeah. hear it, yeah. but but you can't. And yeah. and. It doesn't matter about live. He was he was right, but they are there. Yeah, they are there. Yeah, he's okay. he's like he goes. This is this is texture. I'm adding texture to this guitar, and he goes. It's not going to be anything where it's a standout guitar part. It's going to be exactly what he's playing. It would be no different than I if I had him double the guitar on the same guitar. It's just adding more dimension. And I was like, all right, I trust you. I was still mad. But then when I heard it, I was like, I told Michael, I was like, dude, you're so right. This is unbelievable. Man. Well, and also acoustic guitars are percussive. Yes. You know, you're, he- you're hearing the what pick. He said. You're- yep. Yeah, he yeah, said exactly that, dude. Well, um, we're, we're going to wrap up here in a moment, but before we go, uh, what would you like to leave the listeners with? What you got coming up? The new record? Any tours? What's happening? Yeah, we have a new record. Uh, 
we have a, a residency in Las Vegas with the Scorpions that starts at the end of March. It's for nine shows. We're really excited because we're all Scorps fans. You know, it's just, it's That's just, great. It's just gonna be killer. Um, and yeah, we got a got a lot of shows planned for this year. A lot of traveling, um, and we're working on this new record. And we're gonna get get some new music out to everyone very soon. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, man. I yeah, really appreciate you taking the time today. To this was great. This was a lot of fun, man. I, this is like one of the most fun, some of the most fun I've ever had on a podcast. This is great. That means a lot. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. There's lots more Chris to make a podcast after a few words from our sponsors. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Hey, Chris Makes a Podcast producer, Chris Fafalius here. You may have heard me talk about my band Punchline before. Maybe you already know us, or maybe you're hearing about us for the first time right now. It doesn't matter. No matter what your relationship with Punchline is, I will absolutely guarantee that you'll love our new podcast, A Band Called Punchline. Starting with our humble beginnings in a small town in southwestern Pennsylvania in 1997, we're telling the hilarious, strange, and hopefully inspiring story of the 25-plus years of our band in the most honest way possible, podcast style. A Band Called Punchline is an audio documentary available now wherever you get your pods. So subscribe and let me and my friends share a wild, entertaining, unique, and wonderful tale of music and perseverance unlike any other that's still being written today. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's band you might not know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your song via MP3 only and bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Downcast, a punk rock band from the UK. They have a brand new record out called I Saw Hell When I Was With You. You can find their music on Spotify, and here's a snippet of their song, Catharsis. Rap with Chris and Chris. Another episode right up your alley, Chris. That's right. My uh, 80s metal, uh, heavy metal dreams are coming true on Chris to Makes a Podcast. It's it's awesome. And Rachel couldn't have been uh, any cooler. I seriously agree. A lot of these 80s metal dudes that we've had, no offense to them, they've all been 
awesome. Awesome musicians, great storytellers and stuff. But I feel like there's always a little bit of like, I don't want to call it. I don't want to call it arrogance. I want to call it like, it's just like an attitude. It's like an 80s metal attitude. And I felt like Rachel Bullen is like the most humble 80s metal guy that I've ever heard talk on a podcast. You feel he, that way? I, I I really do. He, he like I said, he he couldn't have been any cooler. Uh, super down to earth. And uh, for those listeners that don't know, I mean, usually you associate the face of the band, the singer, in this case Sebastian Bach, uh, with, with writing the songs, and uh, that's not the case here. You know, uh, Dave the Snake Sabo, uh, the guitarist, and Rachel uh, wrote the lyrics and the music for all these Skid Row songs, all 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 the hits. And you know, I felt that they were they stood apart from their eighties. Uh, and, and early 90s uh, counterparts. So uh, they had a little little more depth to them. It wasn't all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And uh, there, there's a story here behind 18 in life. And it's funny. In the episode, Rachel even said, yeah, it's something about, the, you know, something about Jersey. This the way we are. We tell stories, you know? And again, it's that Brian Fallon mentioned that on his episode, the Bruce Springsteen thing. I don't know what it is about Jersey, but, uh, you know, there, there's a story behind 18 in life that uh, sets it apart from what else was going on in the uh, heavy metal, hair metal genre of the 80s. Yeah, I mean, aside from it being great musically and melodically, there's a story that sucks you in when you listen to this song. Yeah, that's something maybe you'll see a lot of times in country music. I feel like storytelling's very commonplace in country music, but you're right, man, especially in the 80s metal, especially like the cheesy 80s metal, there was just, like you said, it's sex and drugs and whatever, and it's kind of fluff in a way, but not this. This is like a heavy, serious story. And I think people really latched on to that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of surprised that no country artist, a pop country artist, has, has covered this song. I think it would translate really well to to, to pop country radio. But but yeah, you know, and uh, during the episode I mentioned to Rachel, I was uh, looking back, really surprised that MTV touched this. You know, it references shooting yeah. and a gun and killing a child in this and pretty heavy for, for the time. Uh, even probably more heavier now, considering everything that, that's, that's gone on with... Uh, uh, guns and stuff in, in the U.S. So uh, pretty pretty surprised that MTV aired this back in the day. And I respected him for, for saying, too, that if you're going to tell a story to a large audience, you have to tell it responsibly. I feel like a lot of his contemporaries and peers would be like, no, nah, man, I'm just going to say what I'm going to say. <laughs> but he knows. Yeah. And I, I wasn't trying to take anything away with my comments before about the songwriting with Sebastian Bach. I mean, the guy could sing the telephone book and just, I mean, oh, yeah. the pipes on him. He really, really sold this lyric and sold this song. So pro- uh, props to the whole band. But uh, yeah, I, I always, always liked this song. I felt that it was a good, it bridged the gap between their first single of the record, Youth Gone Wild, and the ballad, I Remember You, which was the third single. This was kind of right there in the sweet spot in the middle of them. And uh, I think they picked the... The, the greatest songs uh, the, put their best foot forward with this record. The story of going to uh, Minnesota to record with producer Michael Wagner was really cool. You know, they yeah. he, he got into their psyches and said, hey, stop. We're not having fun. We're not being creative. Let's go. Let's go skiing. Let's go jet skiing for a little bit, and and uh, and we'll and we'll get back and and uh, and start recording again when when we're fresh. That stuff about Michael Wagner was awesome in this episode. Just the fact that he knew sometimes you got to get out of there, dude. I've been there, and I know you've been there, Chris. You've just been in the studio too long. Mm-hmm. You need to get out of there sometimes. So I think that was a really good move to come back in there, energized. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, you don't want to make music sleepy or in a bad headspace or anything like that. I thought that was 
really, really yeah. awesome. That and was prior cool. to this, you know, they had recorded, but it was basically demos. And here they are with Michael Wagner, world-renowned producer. He did everybody uh, in the 80s and, and 90s on up. And uh, he really appreciated those times. He's talking about his bass tone and like how he was dialing it in and giving giving Michael his influences to get the bass tone. And then hearing the mix back for the first time at 18, like being blown away with little things like Michael saying, we need to put acoustic guitar. He's like, we don't have an acoustic. How are we going to do this live? He's like, trust me. When he got it back, you didn't really hear him, but you felt him. You felt the percussiveness of it. And and uh, just the, you could hear it in his voice. The, such fond memories of that time. You know, Rachel is also a bassist. So I had that in common with him. But I felt like one more thing I had in common with him was that he and I would have done the same thing. When you're talking about Michael Wagner and his, you know, all his accomplishments as a producer. The thing that Rachel called out was like, you know he produced like the rock version of Janet Jackson Black Cat, right? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> when I was doing the research for this, I was like, damn, that's awesome. And, and I just love that he made mention of that too. Because it rocks. It's yeah, awesome. Yeah, you know, he was uh, known as an 80s metal guy, but uh, Michael had had some good ears, man. He was uh, he was one of the greatest, uh, greatest producers. Um, I like that you got into a little bass tone talk in this episode. You know, that's not something you talk about every episode as a bassist. You know, I don't want to get too deep into... <laughs> talking about bass tone and gear and stuff but i do agree that his bass sounds awesome on this song bass sounds awesome and the parts are great he he uh uh really put some good parts down and it was really cool to hear him you know talking again to michael wagner about what he was going for sound wise and how he was able to achieve that he learned so much and uh you know he didn't have any good gear they didn't have any money and you know, they're coming and they're using all this professional gear and it's uh it's really where he found his sound and I think that he had, speaking of sound, he had very sound advice for any bassists out there. And I, I feel this way strongly, too. But he said, as a bassist, you can't get in the way of the song. Mm -hmm. You know, you pick your moments. You can shine. You can definitely shine plenty of times in a song. But you also can't be, <laughs> you know, thinking you're, you're playing like lead bass through a whole song. Maybe Flea can get away, away <laughs> with that once in a while. But yeah. but yeah, I think that that's tasteful Base is important. Absolutely. And uh, something else about shining, Chris. I love when people leave us a shining review. Yeah, me too, man. It makes me feel like I'm a shining star when someone goes on Apple Music or wherever and leaves us, yeah. leaves us a review. You know that helps more people find out about the podcast and helps us get all those guests that we want to get and you want us to get. Absolutely. And for those who don't belong to our Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group, please join. It's a lot of fun. And give me a follow on Instagram at less than Chris D. I'd like to talk to you. Yeah, man. And speaking of joining, hey, if you're not part of our supporting cast, maybe now's the time to join because our back catalog of after party episodes, ask somebody who's a supporting cast member what they think of the after party. We put a lot of love into those episodes too. They come out weekly as, you know, kind of like supplementary to the podcast. Sometimes it has something to do with that week's episode. Sometimes it is something completely different, but it's always fun it's uh a lot of music talk and we have a lot of laughs on there kristamakes.com for a few bucks a month you can help us continue making this podcast for all eternity at least while at least while chris and i are here on this planet <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and uh before we wrap here just want to thank this week's guest rachel bowen from skid row for sitting in with us it was a lot of fun and we'll see you next week Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. 
On Future Friday, I talk to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street.